I invite you now to take a Bible to open it to the Gospel of John in chapter 5. As a church family, we're going through the Gospel of John chapter by chapter. And this Gospel, even more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, emphasizes to us the nature of God's love, that we can't learn more about who Jesus is and what he taught and what he did for us and understand it in any other way except uh, an amazing and unconditional love that God has for us expressed through Jesus Christ. When we hear that, we might assume, though, that because we learn about God's love that people responded to that and they uh, reciprocated that love back to God. But the Gospel of John ends just like the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It doesn't end with everyone open-hearted and receiving that love. It ends with people incredibly hostile to that message of God's love for them. And we start to see that intensify in the Gospel of John here in this passage of what we're about to read. And it confounds us to think that as God expresses his love for his creation, that that creation does not respond in kind, does not respond with an openness. But as we read it, the, the goal for us is not to sort of stand in judgment over the people who mistreat our Lord, but to consider ourselves why at times we are not open to the love of God expressed in our lives and how many more things God would desire to do through us if we were in fact open to it. But we're going to pick it up in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. What has just happened is that Jesus has miraculously healed someone who'd been suffering for uh, almost 40 years. And in verse 15, it says, The man who had been healed went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in, for, in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that's where we'll conclude our reading for this morning. Christ is confronting the group of people who we discovered at the beginning of the passage are beginning to intensify in their plans and purposes of opposition against him, that they have begun to conspire all the more how to stop his ministry. And it's even more serious than that, not just stop it, but to put him to death. He's growing in his popularity. People are hearing his message. He is doing miracles that prove the truthfulness of what he's saying. And as they express a lack of openness to that, they want to now come to a place where whatever they can do to stop him so that people don't hear his message and don't see him is what they begin to plan. And so most of what we've just read is Christ confronting these people who are opposed to him, who are unwilling to receive the message that he has. And what we discover is that these people aren't in, in other ways selfish and only living for themselves and they don't care about religion or God at all. No, what's so scary when we read a passage like this is that the very people who seem to be most hostile to Christ are those who think they're following God and who think that they have a relationship with him and that their opposition to Jesus is what they're doing because it's how they're serving God. And that's what makes it scary. If you're someone who comes here today and you're not sure if you believe in God or not, you don't know if there really is a heaven or a hell, anything beyond just this life and what we see, I think I could still get you to agree with me that if there was a God and a devil, if there is a heaven and a hell, wouldn't the most powerful thing the devil could do be to persuade us that we're on the way to heaven when in fact we're on our way to hell? Wouldn't he desire and be most effective at persuading us we were in fact doing the right thing when we weren't? That we were following after God when we really aren't? You'd say, I hope you could say, yeah, I think that would be pretty effective. Because those of us who would then think we were on the road to heaven, that we were in fact following after God, we wouldn't 
consider ourselves needing to hear a message from a Savior, wouldn't consider needing to examine our lives and where we stand before him. And so more often than not, Satan is at work in the world, and we do believe there is a God and a devil and a heaven and a hell here at Lakeside Christian Church. We believe that more often than not, he is not trying to create doubt in people's mind that there's anything beyond this life. Though that exists for some of us, but more effectively, he has created in so many people, ourselves included, all at some point in time, the conviction that we're on the right road, that we already have eternal life, that we're not the ones who need to hear the message that we, in fact, most need to hear. And in that sense, if you will, he vaccinates people against the truth of the message, gives them just enough of it that they think they're okay and they don't consider themselves at risk anymore. And what Christ is trying to do to these people is awaken their minds and their hearts to say, you think you're okay. And he goes through a list of descriptions. You think you have Moses on your side. You think you have the scriptures on your side. You think you're following even what John the Baptist was witnessing to. You think you're doing what God the Father wants you to do. You believe that you're doing the right thing and that you're on the right road. But I'm telling you, if you reject the message that I bring, you're not just rejecting me. You're then rejecting the Father. You're denying the scriptures. You're rejecting John the Baptist. You're rejecting Moses. And how those people are interacting with him, all of those other things come into play. It is simply not possible to only reject the son whom the father has sent. And the reasons that Christ gives for that is he's trying to awaken them so that they would know that they're not okay, that they need a savior, that they don't yet possess eternal life and they need to come into that reality, that they need to pass from death to life. One of the things that he says to them is that they need to understand the love of God the Father and the Son. The love of God the Father and the Son. So that as they, they heard Jesus claiming to do things the Father could do and claiming to work in the same way that the Father could do, they misheard it. And they feel in their minds and hearts torn between if they go after him, then they're going to do something that insults the Father. He says, no one chooses between us. If you hear the word that I'm saying and you choose to follow after me, you're following after the very one whom the Father loves and has always loved. And so there's no competition between whether or not you serve the Father or the Son or whom you give your worship and adoration to. Because the father who loves his son and his sentiment of the world, he delights when the world gives glory and honor to him. Nothing could make him happier because he is the one who has the unique expression of the love of God. But we mishear things all the time. We think we have to make choices or we understand words in ways that are in fact wrong. Um, just lightheartedly, uh, I think it was yesterday, I was trying to get my older boys to agree. I said, you guys get to watch one video. And they got really excited. Well, that creates a dilemma because then they have to agree on something. And so I said, but I'm not starting anything until you agree on what it's going to be. Agree on it, and then we'll do it. And so one of them pops up, well, I agree we should do this. 
And the other one says, well, I agree we should do this. I still don't think you understand what the word agree means. It means the two of you together coming to a place where you can say, this is what we are going to do. But instead, they continue to fight on about which one of them agreed the most on what they should do. And here, the Jews, as they're encountering Christ, and he says that he does things with the Father, they, they pick up opposition where there isn't one. And they're torn in their hearts about whether they should follow after him or whether it's their duty to the Father to reject him. And Jesus is saying, the Father and I love each other completely. Everything that belongs to him, he's shown to me. And every bit of authority that he has that you've read through Moses and the prophets of things that he's done in the world are mine. And there's no jealousy and there's no competition and it's so hard in our broken condition to imagine relationships in this way. But if we're gonna come to believe that God loves us, Jesus is telling those who are confronting him right now that they have to realize that God is love within himself. It's not simply this occasional thing that he does for a few select people who happen to be his favorites. And so he can do many things and sometimes he expresses love. But that it is in his essence and in his nature that he is love. And that there is perfect and reciprocal love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that it's out of the overflow of that that everything that happens happens from the hand of a loving God. And so as they're confronted now with this person, Jesus, who can do things that no one has done before, who says things that no one has dared to say before, he's challenging them to realize that there's, they don't need to be torn in their devotion for the Father and their openness to the Son because there is perfect agreement, perfect love, and unity within them. And when you might wonder this what's practically flows from this for you and for me. But we experience it at a human level that psychologically one of the most helpful things to young children is to be in a loving environment. For any of us, even as adults right now, right? If two of you just started yelling at each other in the middle of the service and it was clear to everyone that you weren't getting along and you really hated each other, Almost none of us would want to be here to hear how it finished. Some of you would. Some of you would pull out your phone. But most of us would be like, I don't, I don't want to know how this ends. It, I, it's weird to be here when there's anger and there's hostility. And so to know that within God himself, within his love, is an environment in which oh, you want to be here. If, if you can get into this room, it's a room you want to stay in where no one's yelling at each other, no one's competing with one another. There's perfect love in God and that we come from that. And this is what's true about us, however we've experienced or not experienced a love on this earth. And so if you come here today and you say, I don't come from an environment where yesterday someone told me they love me or the day before someone gave me a hug. I don't experience a good and a positive and a regular loving environment from people. I'm used to the yelling and the shouting and the cursing and the fighting and the pride and the bitterness. The church of Jesus Christ is to 
supposed to be a place where you hear the good news that you were created by a loving God, that you're not an afterthought or an accident, and you are never alone in anything that you're going through. Because this is the foundation of each and every one of our lives. So then when Jesus makes the next point that now he is the son, that he has the authority of the son over life and death. But there again, we, we resist authority because more often than not, we see authority abused and misused in our world. The Christ is saying that he has been given by the Father the authority over life and death where they just saw someone who wasn't dead but for most of the people in his society was thought about as good as dead, suffering for 38 years and then brought to a place of healing and wholeness. And he says they're going to see even greater works than this where actually dead people are going to be raised again. And they would see that just a few chapters later is when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And even before his own resurrection from the dead, these miraculous signs of people passing from death to life because of the authority given to Christ. When we think of people who've been given absolute authority over life and death, we're mostly afraid they're going to bring us from life to death. That they have an agenda now to control all the people who don't agree with them and who aren't like them, and they're going to use that power to bring death upon people. And Christ is saying, no, 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 this is part of the good news that I have this authority because I am the one who in my love for the world that I've made and in the brokenness, in the broken heart that I have over the way in which sin has led to death in people, I have the authority to bring from death back to life. Those who reject that are in judgment already. Those who deny it have already experienced spiritual death. But the good news that he holds out, that he manifests to, through Lazarus and other experiences, is that he, with his authority, also expresses his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his love. And he brings new life to people. And he never abuses his authority to get rid of his enemies but in the dead hearts of his enemies to create new life, new affections that they would then come to follow after him and experience what they never experienced before. That's how he uses his authority. And he alludes in a way that none of them could have understand fully here in John chapter 5 of what would be true at the end of the gospel. That it's not simply experiences like Lazarus coming out of the grave that are going to take place but that he is the unique son fully loved from the father who has the authority of death and life in his hands. That he will willingly experience death for those that he loves. And then he will be brought back to life. That's a level of love that we can't comprehend. Not just that he has power to do it, but that he has the loving willingness to experience it for your sake and for mine. Because if he has this authority, that means he never had to die. We don't get that choice. We weren't given bodies 
with the option to automatically then someday say, do I want to experience that or not? We don't have life within ourselves. We need life from outside of ourselves. The most able-bodied person in this room is dependent upon your heart beating, upon oxygen coming in, upon food and shelter and clothing. The strongest person in this room is only moments away from the reality of death or days away. We don't have a life within ourselves. We don't have that kind of authority. Christ has it within himself. He has authority. So for him, at the end, to go upon the cross that we sang about is also an expression of his love for us, that he chose to experience that for you and for me. And so then when he drives this home for them, he asks them, or he, he identifies for them, that they don't have the love of God within them. They think they do. They think they're following the Father and they're doing his will and they're obeying Moses in how they're acting. But he challenges them. What they're missing is that they do not have the love of God within them. In verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. And so I put a question mark at the end of that because I think as Christ could speak directly into their hearts because he could see them, he could say that emphatically that they at that time did not have his love within them. For you and for me, it's a question. Do we or do we not? But coming to faith in Christ is not simply a matter of our mind and whether we see things that persuade us that it's true and therefore we can believe and follow after it. But it's just as much a question of our heart and whether we desire to follow after him. Whether we love the things that he loves. And so if he shows that he really is who he said he is and he can do all the things he said he can do, but if we say, but I'm not interested. That's not what I want. I want my own thing. I want my own way. Well, he can do five more miracles. He can do 500 more miracles. It still won't turn someone from a denier to a follower, someone from a skeptic to a believer. But if we come open, not just minded, but open-hearted, and that we do within us desire him to show himself as real, to demonstrate that love that he has for us, to show that he really is the one with the authority over life and death, and that we long for that from the inside out because of our love. Well, then he says, well, not only do we come to experience him as the son is our savior, but then we get the benefit of everything that those people in John chapter five were missing out on then we get to experience what it's like to have a relationship with the Son and the Father, where all of the promises of the Scripture are true to us, where even someone like Moses would speak well on our behalf as followers of the Son, where John would say, the Baptist, yes, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the one that you've been waiting for. And we don't simply make a decision but we get invited into a family with a history and a destiny. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son reigns, reigns over life and reigns over death. That he has within himself the power of life and death. And that in his goodness and in his mercy, he uses it not for our harm and not for our ill, but for our good and for his glory. But we want to come to you in humble awareness that we can be deceived in our own minds and in our own hearts. And sometimes it's when we think we're doing the right thing and we think we're following after you and we think we're on the right road that we're in the most vulnerable and dangerous position that we could be in. And so we pray that you would help all of us to not assume anything or take anything for granted, but to allow ourselves to be challenged by your Son, by his love and his authority, by his power and his mercy, to consider whether we love the things that you love, And we do pray that for all of us who name you and accept you, that you would give us the tangible experience of being a part now of an eternal family where love rules and reigns, where there is peace and joy and hope, the ability to endure and suffer long. We thank you that in your power, you chose to die and live again for us. And so it's in your name that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen.